TYA Talks, the podcast. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of TTYA Talks with me, Irene TTYA. Um, each week, you know, guys, we have to be focused and I really try to utilise this platform to kind of push and show shed a bit of light on women who I feel are really persevering within the creative space and in the creative industries and sports. So without further ado, guys, because you know every week we need to be focused. You know, our guest this week, we're going to kind of get into the world of acting. Um, our guest this week has kind of gone the unconventional route into Hollywood and I feel like that's what makes her so amazing and why she has to be on this podcast to give us the gist um breakout star of queen and slim and now mother wife we catch up with the amazing jodie turner smith hey babes hey (laughs) she's coming in live and direct from la she's doing the shy one but we're gonna get her warmed up she's doing the shy one so let's start at the beginning sis with every episode i kind of just get into the beginning because people are gonna hear your accent now and they're gonna think what the hell is going on here you know so let's start at the beginning tell us about like your heritage where you grew up and where it kind of all started for you yes i was actually born in peterborough and you know, my family is a Jamaican and, you know, that was that we, we are part of that kind of generation that made that move, Jeremy, you know I from from the West Indies to the UK, you know. And um, so, you know, my grandfather is the one who came to England first. And my father was actually born, my father was born in Tottenham, but then he went back to Jamaica and that's where he met my mum. He, he, he met my mum. She was 18. She just graduated from high school. Can you believe that? Like, that's how young they were. I love toxic. black love. I love it. <laughs> it was toxic, though. It was toxic, but it was it's so cute. And you think about it, like, that they met when they were so young. And it's so funny because now, you know, we, we, we wait so much longer kind of to do these things. But back then, it was just like you were getting married and having kids. And my mom and dad, they moved to, to Peterborough and I was born there. And then we actually moved to this small village called Coates. Okay. In that village, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in this, it's this, <laughs> such a small place where it's like, you know, everybody who's there. The school, you know, like we lived at the bottom of a cul de sac. You know, I walked out of, of my house and then turned left and the nursery school was right across from the primary school. And I remember, like, you know, just the only people that I really ever saw that were other black people were my family. Mm. We lived that family in that village. You know what I mean? And so I remember when, this idea of going to America came about, I was really excited because I was just like, there's going to be black people everywhere. Because I mean, it's not, it's like such a different experience than if you're in London. It's like such a different experience because you're not seeing people that look like you everywhere. And not to say that, I mean, I know that there was, you know, because things would happen and sometimes my mum would be like, you know, they're doing that to you because you're black, like at school. But I was so young that I didn't really like clock it. Mm. You know what I mean? And I just remember thinking, I, but I just remember thinking that I wanted to, I wanted to know other black people that weren't my family, mm. you know? And it's, it's weird when you have an experience like that, where you kind of grow up looking at other people that don't look like you or, or you know, it's, you want to feel like you're not so othered. So then we moved to America and we moved there because my parents split up. So we, you know, we left my dad back in England and um, we moved to Maryland. And it was just a big culture shock. Because, and it was it was interesting to kind of be around other people. Then it was also really interesting to sort of jump into that experience of what it's like to be black in America, which mm. is 
you know, its own unique experience because of the way that this country was built on the oppression of black people, because the way that this country was built on genocide and slave labor. And it's just so ingrained in the society that there's just so many elements of it that, you know, it creates a lot of things and it creates. And this is also this American idea that it belongs to everybody, whether you're black, white, you know, Mexican, anything. There's this American idea that like when you come to America, you have to be American. American, yeah. So, did you do high school in America? Yeah. Mm. And middle school as well. Yeah. And 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 so it was just, you know, it was one of those things. Because when you're young, you just want to fit in. You know what I mean? And you want to, and especially when you're young and you've come from somewhere where you're like, I, you know, I never saw black people. And I wanted so much to be a part of a community of black people. That journey of because of how I came here and what I experienced coming here I kind of went down this path of like how could I be the most acceptable form of Jody for people to like and ex- mm. and, and and you know what I mean to to make it so that I'm not other and so you know I was always of all the kids and I was, was the one like, that had my head in the books and was, I loved school and I I thought I was going to be a lawyer and I I had like and you know there's also you know when you come to America as an immigrant as well there's this idea like you know they sell you on this American dream, dream. like mm. you can and that's what's amazing about here is that you know there is it is possible for you to it's not like in in other places in the world where it's like if you're born poor you stay poor like in America it's like there's this idea that you could be poor and like pull yourself up, up you know you find out that there's a lot of things in the way of you pulling yourself up especially if you're black but that's not the idea that you're sold I mean I literally you know in England it's not like well you know we're not coming from a third world country here in England and I mm. still thought when I was coming to America that the streets here were like paved with gold I thought it was like the land of milk and honey like, even in even in England like they sell that dream about America like you know I, I went on this path of being like this overachiever, this, you know, this person who was very much in the left brain, very much like a type, just like, you know, trying to do everything I could to be the smartest I could and, and figuring out like, what could I do with my life so that I can make money? Mm. But I studied finance at school and I, I decided that I was going to, you know, I, when I left school, I, I became a corporate banker. It's actually what I did first. Wow. Mental. <laughs> I, I never I never expected it <laughs> I never expected it but you know what that's one thing that's really interesting because on this podcast there's people who have known exactly what they wanted to do from a very young age and have moved hell on earth to go and get it there's some people who have started at a gone through bcd and ended up at z you know so i think it's really important to understand that just because your journey or just because you study one thing doesn't mean that you can't transform or 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 go into a completely different path when i tell people that i studied forensic science they basically look at me and i was like i know i was obsessed with csi but at the same time now my whole occupation has nothing to do with the arts of science but there's still loads of things that you learn along your journey that you can imply into your working world you know i am of the opinion that even if the only thing that you learn is that you know what you don't want to do that is a big thing Mm. you know what i mean because that's that's really what it's all about and for me it was like you know that I kind of had to go through all the different like iterations of myself to figure out who I was and what I really wanted and I feel like it's it's what has given me the 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 stamina and the and the ability to kind of exist in the career that I have now 
That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, so back to sort of how I got here. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I went to school and I studied finance and, and I, um, when I graduated, I started working for PNC Bank in middle market corporate banking. And I just, it just occurred to me that I would look around at everyone that I was in this like training class with and everybody who I was hired with. And I just saw that there were people that really enjoyed what they were doing. And I didn't have that feeling. And I wanted to have that feeling. Because I was like, I know that it's possible because I look over here at this person and they're excited about what they're doing. And I'm over here looking at fashion vlogs. I'm, on my, I'm in the back on my computer just like doing the bare minimum while looking at everything all else. All the tabs are open on the screen. Yeah, all the tabs are open. <laughs> I know that. You know I mean? <laughs> and so I was just like, there is, there is, a, it is possible to, to know what you want and to, and, and to, be excited about it and I thought that that feeling was more important to me than a, than a feeling of security of like knowing that okay I'm making good money because you know when I graduated from college it was 2008 which was in the middle of the recession and so to have a job in finance in the middle of the recession straight out of university that was like I knew I was I was I was blessed I should be grateful for this job and excited about it and I was just not though I was like right, well, I'm going to quit and just figure it out. And I just, you know, I was 22 and I just thought to myself, I have nothing to lose and everything to gain by just what could happen for myself. I moved out to LA. I had a friend, a girlfriend was living in LA that I had met while I was in, at university. She worked for Common. She was his assistant. I used to have a blog. You know, we're of that generation that I spent, you know, we were like MySpace, Live Journal, like we were doing all this stuff. Yeah, and I had this and you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Blackberry Messenger. That was our generation. BBM. <laughs> you know, um, and so I, I, um, I had been blogging. You know, at my in that eight months that I worked as a corporate banker, and like as I was ending at university, I, I had this blog, and I was always writing. And so, you know, my friend who was Common's assistant, she uh, was always trying to convince me to move to LA, and and. I actually started running Common's blog for her. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to move out there. And I thought maybe I would get a job like as a writer or something because like that was really, I was like, you know, this is what I actually love doing. I love to write. Because I never thought that I was going to be someone who was in front of the camera. Interesting. And it's interesting because, you know, many people, they look at me now and they're like, oh yeah, right. But I mean, as I'm sure you know, mm-hmm as a dark-skinned woman. There were many points in my life where I was made to feel like I was not the standard of beauty in any way. Mm. You know what I mean? And even when people began to say that I was beautiful, it was like caveat of, even though you're dark-skinned. <laughs> you, know? you know what I mean? Sis, sis. You know, which is a conversation. It's interesting because I've, I've talked about this a bit. You know, at that 20, when I started doing the personal cleaning, you know, because whenever I tell my story, this is a part of my story. You know, but it's always something that people, I get a lot of pushback about it because, you know, people are not really willing to have that conversation. But even as I was doing Press for Queen and Sim and I was talking about, you know, white supremacy and what it's like in America. And it was something that people were just like, get out of this country then and da da da. And then you look at what's happening right now where people are finally willing to have an honest conversation about white supremacy. You know, and the effects of that and what how that affects a black person in this country and why someone, you know, for me, it's like, I feel, you know, because I've been in America for over 20 years. I love America. 
you know, and I feel like I as much, though I wasn't born here, I as much have a right to criticise it mm. as the next person because I, I do love it here, do you know what I mean? But I also know what it's like to be black here. Mm. And I know there are certain elements of that. And because people have never been willing to have a conversation, like now finally, you know, I'm hopeful about what's going on because like people are finally, you know, white people, especially liberal white people, especially are finally willing to have a real conversation about how to be an ally and how white supremacy, they're benefiting from it and how all the microaggressions and all that stuff, people are finally willing to have that conversation. But it's just like, at the end of the day, you know, my child is black mm-hmm. and it's like, I would love to, and I, when you're a parent, you want to protect your child from things. By and I know I can't necessary by any means I mean, necessary. Mm-hmm. And I know I can't protect her from everything, you know what I mean? But in terms of like the toxic energy of, of, of not wanting to talk about what's really going on with race in this country, I wanted to protect her from that. You know, so mm-hmm. for me, I was, like, I was like, right, I don't want to raise my daughter here, you know, and there's so many reasons, you know what I mean? And it's like, I, I'm so happy to see that we're finally beginning to, have real conversations of accountability about that and by we i mean white people in this Mm. country yeah agreed and that's why i feel like it's been such an interesting time because for sure we're definitely in a space now where we feel like we're in the space to have our voices heard because it's not that like you said it wasn't that we weren't having those conversations before we've always been having these conversations but now we're actually in a space where where white people are ready to receive those conversations and I think that's the difference and I do feel like there has been the ability and that's where I feel like there's going to be the ability for change I'm going to get into that more later but I want to jump back to like actually that transition for moving to LA because you know LA for a lot of people is the city of angels is the kind of dreamland especially for anyone who wants to get into acting that's kind of like the go-to space so let's let's rewind back to when you kind of moved to LA you started writing this blog for um writing commons blog as kind of more just like as in your transition period how yeah. did kind of life change for you from that point? I have to start a little bit from before I moved here. Before I moved, like shortly before I moved out, like between the time that I quit my job and I actually moved out here, because of my friendship with, you know, this girl, actually her name was Val, shout out to Val, love her. You know, because she was Commons assistant, you know, through that, I had started meeting people in the business. Like Common went on tour. This story is actually, it's, <laughs> it's really mad and it kind of goes even further back. Give us, the, release the justice, release it. <laughs> All right. So when I first went to university in Pittsburgh, right, Kanye went on tour with Common, uh, Fantasia and Keisha Cole. At the time, I wasn't a Kanye fan. I wasn't really familiar with his music. I was that girl who was like, I don't really listen to any rap music. Like I'm listening to, you know, music that you might typically people would say like, uh, people always be like, you're not like a regular black girl. I'm like, what does that even mean? But anyway, not going to get into the narrow views of blackness, but I didn't know anything about Kanye, but I loved Common. I, you know, and when you're in university, you know, when they, what do they do, like, tour, artists do tours there, like, generally, like, the tickets are free, you just have to, like, get online and sign up. We all did that, and we went and, and signed up, and I, I was, like, really excited about this, and then Common pulled out of the tour, right? So I go to this concert, I saw, we're all sat in the arena, we have, you know, one of my girlfriends managed to get really good seats, like, in the third row, and we were, like, up in the nosebleeds. So me being the person that I was at that time, I'm like clocking the whole thing. I see they're not checking tickets at the other side. So if you walk down. So I say to my friends, I'm like, let's go on the other side and see if we can get down to the floor. And they're like, we don't want to do that because we're, we don't want anyone, we don't want to get in trouble. Da, da, da. And I'm like, 
I'm like, okay, I'll go and I'll check and I'll let you this, guys. This is why me and you are here, sis. Because, you know, <laughs> whenever we see the opportunity, we need to go for it, yeah? We saw the op- You saw the opportunity and you said, let's be going. Let's be famous. Let's go. <laughs> so I went to the other side and as I had seen, lo and behold, they weren't taking the tickets. So I went, the lights go down. Everyone gets up and starts rushing the stage because Kanye is about to come out. Right, you know, it's when he was doing the the Gap. He was wearing the his his Gap uh, uniform, and wrapping wearing backpack. So, this is backpack Kanye. <laughs> backpack Kanye. So I was just like, "Whoa, actually, I really like this. This is this is really amazing." And so I'm I'm sat there, and there's there's a, there's a guy on stage who's like singing background for Kanye, and he just keeps on like looking at me, and I'm just like. So then security comes over to me and they're like, oh, you know, Tony, Tony would like to meet you. He wants to know if you'll come backstage after the show. And I'm like, no. And I'm like, okay, I'll go, but only if I can bring all my friends with me. And he's like, how many of you are there? And I was like, well, and he thought about it. And then he was like, okay. (laughs) I could be the cool one because I just got everyone backstage. So the show is really amazing. I was like, well, actually, I'm a Kanye fan now. And we go backstage <laughs> and I bring all my, I get all my girls to come down from the nosebleeds and we all come and we go and we go backstage. And so then Tony, it was actually this guy, Tony Williams, who's actually Kanye's cousin and he always sings background for, for Kanye. And so he was like, you know, let me take you to meet Kanye. And so he takes us to go meet him. We sit in this room and Kanye comes in for like a second, waves, and then just walks out and is gone. And <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I'm so sorry. I wanted you to meet him. I feel bad. And he's like, Listen, we're playing at Penn State next weekend. I will give you two tickets and you'll have all access. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, Okay, cool. Still kind of like, don't know this guy. So I'm Jeez. just like, You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't really know what's going on. So another time, so, you know, because I was at Pittsburgh. So Pennsylvania is a, a really big state. But uh, University of Pittsburgh is like three-hour drive to um, Penn State State, University. I was really good mates with my RA, my resident advisor in my dorm. I lived in an all-girls dorm. And she, so I went to her and she was like older, you know, and really cool. And I was like, listen, so I met this dude at at the Kanye show. And he said that if I come to Penn State, he'll have tickets, like all access tickets for me and a friend. I don't even know if this is going to be a real thing because I don't have a physical ticket or anything. He just said to turn up. So like, are you down to go on a road trip? Like, should we do this? And she was down. So we drove to Penn State and we get there. And this time, and he's like, and so we're, we're getting there. And you know what it's like when it's like, you really don't even know what's going to happen. And so we go and we have this amazing time. Like he takes us, we meet Kanye, we meet Fantasia, we meet Keisha Cole. Everyone is like really chill. When we meet Kanye, he's like getting his hair cut in his... Uh, in his room dressing room by himself and that's when I, I don't know if you know Ivan that's when Ivan used to cut his hair like and that was his barber and it's like him and Ivan and me and my girlfriend and Tony and I'm just like oh, what is happening so we watch this show it's really fun Tony ends up to not be like a creep he's like actually a really nice guy <laughs> we all go out it's actually Halloween at Penn State we all go out and we're just like we had the best time and I'm like wow and so I have I, I find this friend and so after that Everywhere they went around the world, like Tony would always like call me and be like, yo, we're in this place, we're in that place, like send me pictures. I'm like, wow, this guy's not cool. So I am about to graduate from university. Mm. I'm walking to my last class to take this final exam. I get a phone call 
from Tony and he's like, I have my friend is here and he wants to talk to you. So he puts me on the phone with someone else and it's Comet. Mm. And it's like, Comet's like, and he's like, Tony told me that you're about to graduate from school. Congratulations. And that summer I was planning to go, I was going to England to stay with my dad and I was going to travel around Europe. And he was going to be doing a show in Germany. And he was like, I'm doing this show in Germany. I would love for you to come. Like, we'll set you up. And I, I was literally about to like fall out in the street, just like lose consciousness. I was like, Common is on my phone right now. That's too talking. much. So I go to England. I stay with my dad. My same girlfriend who I met Kanye with way back, she comes with me uh, to a couple of these European stops. Like we go to Barcelona together, which was, oh my God, amazing. amazing. And then I go to Germany because Common is doing the show. Now this whole time that Common was like, when the person who I reached out to to set up the tickets for me for the show was his assistant, Val. And my whole thing, when I, whenever I, you know, go backstage or anything, I don't want to feel like anybody could possibly think that I'm there because I want to sleep with anyone or anything. Mm. So I was like, person I've been talking to is this woman so I'm going to reach out to her and go to find her first when I went backstage and so I went and I met her and they were going to Barcelona the next day and so me and her just start talking and we're like I was like oh my god I just came from there it was incredible like you have to do this you have to do that and then we just clicked and we vibed and because of that experience we became friends okay so now back to so I start working my job I don't like it I hate it I'm always talking to her she's like wow you just you should move to LA I'm like I don't know what I would do maybe be a writer I so then I quit my job I'm still in in Pittsburgh kind of just like pissing about because I was honestly a bit scared I was like I really didn't know what I was gonna do mm-hmm. or like where I was gonna go what I was gonna you know and you know while I had been working at the bank Common had gone on tour with NERD and I flew me and my girlfriend to Miami to go and see this because I was just, I was making money and I just was spending it all because I was just so bored. And so <laughs> it's like, it wasn't, it wasn't good. It wasn't good for the future, but you know, for the, for the then it was good. Memories, memories. Um, you know what I mean? Good memories. And so because of that, because because of that, I met like all these guys that worked in the band for NERD, like that did sound, lights, all that stuff. Not like the main guys, but I met all these guys who were the behind the scenes movers. And so like we kind of kept in contact. So then NERD were going on tour and they were coming to Pittsburgh. So they came to Pittsburgh and did a show. And like me and my girlfriend who I, who went with me to see them in Miami, she came up from Maryland to Pittsburgh. We go to the show. We actually pick some of the guys up, take them to their sound check. And then we're just like hanging with the bands. So we're like, you know, before the show and all my girlfriends who are still in town, I'm like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. I got you with the backstage. It's fine. Cause like, these are my people. Right. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm, I didn't I'm talk. The plug, to- I'm the plug. I'm the plug. <laughs> but I didn't talk to Pharrell or Chad or Hugo. Cause I was like, I don't know these guys. And I don't want to think that I'm trying to do nothing that I'm not yeah. trying to do. I'm just, because I'm in the mix because I know like these fellas from the South and whatever. But it's like, interesting as women how you always have to have that thought process because I'm the same. Obviously, we have a lot of artist friends in common. We know a lot of artists, but there's still that perception of if you're a female backstage, that's kind of what you're there for. You know what I mean? And yeah. you have to, and it's really unfair when you think about it because if you were a dude, like nobody would just be thinking that. Like you can't just like be a fan and just be enjoying it and just be, it's like, no, you're there to, you know, and that, and also it, they make you feel like that's your currency back there. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah, yeah. And it's like, I am not, I, I, I'm trying to do everything to make sure that that is not the case because I don't want to have to cut anybody. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to have to 
stab anybody up. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to just make it clear without making it clear. Uh, you know, so before the show, it's like me, we're the only ones who are a part of the band that is like backstage. Like they're about to go on stage, everybody circles up and they're like, come on, get in the circle for the prayer. And I'm just like, what's going on with my life? Like, this is mad. <laughs> this, is, this is so mad. And, but you know, I didn't go and speak to Pharrell or anybody because I was just like, don't know them, don't want to push up, like, don't want to. So after the show, I bring all my girlfriends backstage and I'm like, I'm back there and I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to go and say, I like, I, I don't know. You don't know what, when this moment is going to come again. Like I've never met him. I've literally was, have been standing five feet away from him at so many occasions tonight. Like I'm going to go and speak. So I went over to like introduce myself and be like, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan. And he was like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm a writer. Da, da, da. He was like, no, fuck that. You need to be in front of the camera. And I don't know if you met Pharrell, but when he's excited about something, how he acts, it's really like, he's excited. And I was just like, and everyone at this point now, like people are looking at me. I'm just like, what's going on? Like Pharrell is like, and he's like, do you know Hype Williams? Do you know Hype Williams? And I'm like, I mean, I know who that is, is. but I don't. <laughs> what are the homies? What are the homies? <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, I'm gonna, he's like, you need to call, I'm gonna give you his, you need to call Hype and tell him I said to call him and, and, and he needs to work with you. And he's like, matter of fact, give me your phone. I'm gonna call him right now. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, what <laughs> he calls Hype Williams from my phone. He's like, Hype, 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 I'm with this girl and, and she's Jamaican and she's, and you need to work with her, Hype, Hype. No, I don't ever send you no, no mess, Hype. And I'm like, what is, I, wow. So I, I, and I'm just like, wow. So whoa, that whole whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just slow that one in case people at the back missed that one, yeah? <laughs> so Pharrell called Hart Williams from your phone and said to Hart Williams, I don't send you no bogus girls, yeah? So if I'm attaching you to somebody, she's, she, you need to be focused and work with her. But he called him from yeah. your phone. Mad. From my phone, babe. Mad. Right? That's mad. When he puts it back with Hype and Hype's like, all right, cool. He's like, all right, give me a call in a couple of days and let's talk. And I'm just like, right, okay. You know, I, I call Hype. I send him some pictures of me. And, you know, I didn't even have, like, any real modeling pictures. It's, like, some bogus modeling. <laughs> <laughs> I send him the pictures, and I don't hear anything back. Crickets. And I'm just like, wow. He probably saw my pictures and was like, who is this? Like, no, this girl is not. She's trash. So I was like, oh, God. So my girlfriend, Val, I was going out to L.A. to visit, right? And she was like, why don't you call him, tell him you're coming to LA, you just want to sit down with him and have a coffee and like, you know, catch see your vibe. you mm, catch together, your vibe. right? Mm. And I'm like, okay, good. So I call him and he's like, right, when when do you land? And I was like, you know, I land at eight o'clock and he's like, cool. He's like, my office is right by the airport. Why don't you swing by on your way like when you get there? And I'm like, okay. So Val picks me up from the airport. We drive to his office. And we get there and it's like, I see there's all these black SUVs parked out front. There's like loud music. I'm like, what's going on? So I walk in and it's like, there's all these people. And I'm like, hi, you know, like, just, I'm like, I'm looking for Hype Williams. Like nobody's rating me. And so this man comes over to me and it's Hype and he just looks at me and he's like, okay, cool. Come with me. So we go into the back of the building and there's like this white convertible and two guys standing outside the convertible and there's Kanye and the dream. And then he, he walks me over to this other black SUV and he takes out something wrapped in tissue paper and he hands it to me and he's like, why don't you go in there and try this on and tell me how it fits? And I'm like, okay. 
<laughs> so I go to this what? trailer. What? Yeah. So I go to this trailer and it says Herve Leger bondage white bathing suit. And I put it on and I'm just like, I'm stood there with Val and I'm like, Val, what is going on? And she's like, and so we were in there for like 15 minutes. No one comes back. And then suddenly somebody knocks at the door. It's not hype. Somebody else comes, looks at me and then knocks on the adjoining trailer door and is like, get Jody through hair and makeup. She's going on first with Kanye. Uh? <laughs> it was a music video. I walked, I came off the plane, I landed and walked onto a music video set and I had no idea. He didn't tell me like, oh, you're coming here to be in this video. He said, why don't you come and we'll meet? Because my office is by, the, it was his studio and we, so it was a music video. This story is too mad. This is too mad. So were you in the video? Yes, is Kanye... <laughs> Is the dream featuring Kanye West walking on the moon? Walking and there on you the see moon! <laughs> you know. Let me go. Looking. I'm going to be focused and go watch that after this episode because looking. I need to look closely and see that one again. That's <laughs> It's me looking, looking on like the moon. Like yes, uh, that video. And I remember me and Kanye are like doing this. We're like inside of this like space ship tunnel thing and he keeps shouting at me you need to look more scared and I was thinking to myself like I am scared I'm fucking pissing myself like what's even going on that was a really funny experience and I say all that to say that the hype was really the first person to sort of like give me jobs which was really amazing because I moved to LA I hadn't saved any money because I've been spending all my money because I was bored you and I never money that. fast going to Miami yeah, <laughs> and I, I kind of just made this decision to like quit my job and try to figure it out and move to LA and it's like when I moved to LA I mean I was I had no money. I was, you know, I, I, I lived on, I remember at the end of Hollywood Boulevard, Boulevard by Fairfax. And it was like every month, girl, I was like, I don't even know how this rent is getting paid. And let me tell you how I got paid. Hype Williams putting me in music videos. I did three, I think, music videos with him. I did um, also Jamie Foxx, um, Digital Girl. Oh my God. Okay, sick. Um, and then another one, I, I can't remember at this point in time, but, it was just amazing because it was like this thing where even though that wasn't, you know, because then as you get into modeling, you realize, okay, like what is the business really about? Yes. And what does it really take to make it as a model? And, oh, actually, LA is not the place you go if you're trying to be a top model. You need to be in New York or London or Paris. You know what I mean? But like all those things I didn't know, but it was like, that was the thing that kind of got me started. And the whole Pharrell situation is the thing that sort of just gave me the confidence to be like, you know what? I should just try. I mean, I'm like, and here's this person who doesn't know me from Adam and who thinks that I could have some form of success here. Why don't I just believe in myself and try to make it happen? And I, and that's why I just kind of feel like, you know, in so many ways, there, there's so many things that are required to make it. And it's number one, it's hard work. Number two, it also this very, esoteric and out there thing which is luck you know what I mean it's part of it and even in business school you know when you go to business school they teach you that success is about positioning yourself to get lucky mm. they even teach you that in business school you know what I mean because it's more than just like the hard work that you do but it's also about like where does your intuition lead you mm. where does your instinct lead you so that you can be in a position to fucking strike it and get lucky do you know what I mean it's part of it and I kind of feel like I've just been following my instinct and my intuition like all this time and it's getting me. And because there is a, a part of me that is connected to purpose, it's working out, you know what I mean? And that when I have the opportunities, I'm not afraid to like work really hard for it. So 
after I did those music videos, I was like, right, like I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to go around to, I went around to agencies in LA to open calls. And that's how I signed with an agency is that, you know, cause nobody scouted me off the street. You know, people would never like offer picture, just like book me, even as a model. So when I started working as a model, like all the jobs I got, it was because I got in a room with someone and they met me in a my personality and they were like right we want to work with this girl like I was never that model who they just like look at my picture and they're like yes her you know what I mean? and that is also why I began to feel like that for me it was something I needed to do that was a bit more than just being a face in the way that you are as a model like I felt like because so much of my success to that point like you know I actually moved back to England because I was like let me try to make it in London and that was, I was in for a rude awakening. <laughs> because, you know, at the time that I moved, so I went back to London in, I went in 2010 to 2011. I was there and I went, I went out there like November of 2010. So it was like, if I wanted to really just give myself more reasons to not want <laughs> to feel like bleak about the whole, it was miserable. I had no money. I was staying in London. I remember my friend, he had a warehouse in Dalston. And like there were so many times, there were so many people that were like living there. Like, and it's like there were so many times I like slept there, and just like I mean, I was I was literally just like bouncing around in London, and I had no money, and I was and I was so thin, and I was still felt like I just wasn't thin enough, and I'm just like going over. And I remember my when I got to England, my dad he gave me that that London A to Z because at that time you know you weren't doing the, you know what I mean? It wasn't Google Maps, okay? It was the fucking book, okay? And I'm like looking, you know, trying to make it to go sees and this and that. And I went around to all these agencies and they would be like, you know, we've already got one black girl and she's mixed race and she doesn't work that much. So we really don't have anything for you. And I would be like, what is going on? And I eventually just, you know, left and came back. Like, I mean, I worked with one agency and I, it was like, all right, but it's just, I wasn't really making any money. It was just, it was bleak. You know, I, I did party a lot. <laughs> Sis. Sis. <laughs> Organic networking, that's what we call it these days. <laughs> exactly. I feel like I still know everybody from back then. Yeah. So, but anyway, so I came back to the States and when I was modeling out here in LA, it was just like my bread and butter was doing TV ads, more of being an actor, because, you know, they consider you an actor when you're doing TV ads. And it was more of that than modeling. Mm-hmm. And that's why I made all my money, like print modeling. I didn't make much money. And I kind of just had to like resign myself to the fact that like this is not going to be the thing for me. But I already was starting to feel like I didn't want it to be anyway, because the way that they treat you on a, on set when you do a, a, a commercial versus how they treat you when you do a, a photo shoot is like night and day. And then the more I did the commercials, the more I was just like, I don't, you can't treat me like this. And already as well, like because I started modeling at 22. I already had like this attitude and energy where it's like, you're not going to treat me like a 16 year old model who doesn't know any better. Like you're not going to, you know, there were so many times where I got into with agents. Like you're not going to speak to me like that. You're not going to da da da. You knew your worth. Yeah. You knew your worth. And you were a bit older as well. So they couldn't manipulate. They couldn't, they couldn't just pass on those insecurities, which they love to do in that industry. 
Um, so that's really an interesting because we on episode one we caught up with like Leomi Anderson and Neelam and they were saying the same thing of just like in the early days you don't have the confidence to feel like you can stand up to the agent or like they were getting told what to eat what not to eat and they just didn't have the confidence but as you get a bit older and I love the fact that you said that you kind of came into it a little bit older then because it's like you have a little bit more confidence but also you know you're worth a bit more so you can, you can stand up to them and be like actually that's not for me or that is for me or I'm not actually going to do that or you can't speak to me that way or I'm not going to tolerate that you know yeah I mean when I first went around to agencies in LA in LA like it's not even Paris like I don't know why they were trying to act like they was a but I literally went to an agency and they asked me they were like would you consider having some lipo done in your thighs and babe I was 125 pounds okay I'm fine you know what I mean like I can you and I just was like are you mad like no doing that crazy that's actually really really crazy so how did the kind of transition I know you kind of said that you started acting kind of on set because it was more commercial did you then on the side like start taking acting classes or how did because LA is no joke sis and I feel like I think it's important for us to stress that there's many of us including me who have gone tried and failed um and it is very much about who you know. Like now I love LA because I've got my little setup there. Like I understand how things work. Like I remember when I first went to LA, wasn't driving. There wasn't Uber. Like I was staying in Glendale. A taxi from Glendale to Hollywood would cost me like $100 just to go out. So $100 there and $100. So $200 before my foot has even sizzled and entered into the club Yeah, I've already spent $200 just getting there. So LA was very, very tough and... So I think it would be interesting to just understand how you really transitioned and how you made it work for you because it isn't somewhere that you can just show up and show out. As much as it, as much as it's made to look that way, it's very difficult. So yeah, when I, I mean, because first of all, I had one real job in LA, like a, a job that was not, you know, that was not modeling or, or, or acting. And that was, I was hostess at Bar Marmont for six months and it's incredible because like where I lived I could walk to the chateau from my house which is like very convenient because I didn't have a car so I would walk to work and also working there it was just like and at that time that's when Bar Marmont you remember when Bar Marmont was a thing yeah. it's not it's not anymore, but you remember and it's just like you know I met so many people and everyone was there and it was just this really sort of perfect situation to kind of drop into because even like after I stopped working there, I remember because of the connections I made, like I remember when I first got like, I had this little beat up, uh, BMW, 2001 BMW. And like, I would go, when I would go out, the ballet guys at Bar Marmont would just ballet my car for free because they all knew me. You know what I mean? Like, me. Sis, you got to get it by any means necessary. You got to use the contact, sis. You got to see me, like I worked in hospitality for so long. Like hospitality was like the bread and butter for me. Just into, and I say this all the time, like working in nightlife and working in hospitality is like the best way to organically make connections. And and that was for me, that, that doing yo-yoing, Notting Hill Arts Club to like working at the edition to like, you know, doing so much because then it's just like, really, you meet your, you meet everybody, one in an actual good mood, so everyone's there yeah. to party everyone's there to have a good time but actually you can where you're kind of tall and you stand out anyway people just are naturally drawn to you and you can relate to it because me and you me and Jody bonded because we're both tall girls when we first met but like it was just a sense of people naturally are not even just fascinated by you but a lot of the time they are fascinated because they're like raw you're so tall and then you just naturally you just have this energy that people are drawn to you and where you're kind of the vibes ambassador I like to call us we're like the vibes ambassadors people are just naturally just drawn to you so it's always an interesting way to just 
start conversations and build organic, natural relationships with people. So anyway, so as I was doing like all these television commercials, I kind of just said to myself, I was like, I should be submitting myself on acting jobs because I live in I live in Hollywood and I'm already, you know, on these like breakdown websites that you have to be on when you're a model and stuff. And I just thought, because again, going with this, this energy and this attitude that I've always had where I have nothing to lose and everything to gain by just like trying to see what is available to me. What, what can I possibly create? So I went and I started submitting myself for like little things like short films, da, 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 da. and then I saw this breakdown for um, a role on True Blood and it was like they were looking for three women and they were like, uh, must be comfortable with nudity. I was like, check. <laughs> Give it to them. Give it to them. And they were like, we're looking for three very diverse women. And I was like, okay, that could mean they're looking for a blonde, a brunette and a redhead. Or it could mean that a black girl has a chance. Is it? This is so it. I was like, they're, they're speaking my language. And so um, I went in for that. And it was, we had, they, 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 it, was a, it was a speaking role because we would have one line, which was to say William Compton three times. And they brought us all in. Remember it word for word. (laughs) Word for word. I remember those words. I went in and I did my William Compton, William Compton, William Compton, (laughs) and I got hired. And it turned into four episodes recurring. And I was like, okay, this is what happens when I just throw it out there that I want to do this. Trust in the universe. What would happen? What would happen? if I put some real effort and intention behind it and applied myself. So I started taking acting classes. I started meeting people, meeting managers, talking to them, getting advice from people, just like doing the work. And then my modeling agent, his husband, who is a manager, and he had let me meet him like way back when I first just did the True Blood and he gave me this great advice. And in the meantime, like I had gone, I could do work. I worked with this other manager and the third audition that he sent me on was for this, uh, this TV show that they were remaking from a British show called Mad Dogs. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for a woman who was meant to be, they were looking for like a Belizean woman, but they were like, you know, because back then, which is what's so funny about diversity inclusion now, but back then they were like, you could be Latina, uh, West Indian or Belizean. Like you could be any of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like whatever your native. So I was like, I was on the phone. Whatever you need me to be, I could be. You know what I mean? I was like, Mummy, help me with these. Like, I need to be, I need to go in there straight Jamaican girl. And I went in there and I booked this job. I had shaved my head. And so when I went in for this audition, I was like bullheaded. I was wearing these big earrings, I remember. And I got this job and it was me uh, um, and Steve Zahn, Michael Imperioli, Ben Chaplin, Romney Malco and Billy Zane. And we shot it for one month in Puerto Rico. Man. And it was just like my first time where I was just like, wow, I feel like a real live actress. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it was like, I had no real experience, you know, but I was there working with these guys that between them had like over 25, over 100 years of acting experience. And I just, probably the first time in my life where I, I listened more than I talked, you know what I mean? Because I just was like a sponge. And that's the other thing like, that's so important is it's like in every experience, I just have tried to be a sponge and like learn. Because number one, you don't know when you're going to have another one of these experiences. And number two, it's like the whole purpose of it is to grow. You know what I mean? If you're not growing, then what are you doing? And, you know, Romney really kind of like took me under his wing and and would like help me with the scenes that I had and just like really support me and showing me how like an actor works. Mm. You know, and 
Michael would be doing like helping me to do self tapes and stuff. And I was just like, wow, I'm, I'm getting like these right now are my peers. And it was like, and not only that, but I was living on an Island to do all this. You know what I mean? Like in the row of trailers, mine was the last one there. You know what I mean? And like you get, walk out my trailer and go to the left and there's the ocean. And I was just like, Every day I was in that ocean baptizing myself and just like thanking God and being like saying my mantra, which was, yes, thank you, more of this. It's, you know what I mean? Like you have to speak it into your life. And you I have just to speak have it into existence, sis, thousand percent. And I came back from that. I met, I saw that manager that my modeling agent had connected me before his husband. And when he saw me, it's like I had this island glow. I had a bald head. I'd been, and he was like, you look amazing. What have you been up to? And I was like, well, actually... I was just doing this show and working with this person and that person, da, 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 da. And everything I told him was like, wow, interesting to him, you know? Mm. And so a couple of weeks after that, he reached out to me and he said, you know, one of my oldest friends is casting Nick Reffin's new movie. It's about models that are blood-sucking demons right up your alley. Mood, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> mood babe. <laughs> mood. <laughs> but I told... Um, casting about you and they want to meet you can I send you into this and I was like yeah absolutely and it was for that film Neon Demon mm. and so I I auditioned before the holidays it was amazing they were like right when you come back from holidays you're going to read for Nick Reffin I came back from holidays I read for Nick Reffin I didn't get the job I went to Abby Lee who is very similar to me in that we both have eyes mouth and a nose mm -hmm. <laughs> Sis. but what I got from that was, you know, that manager called me after and he said, I want to represent you. That to me was the, the biggest win because it was a move that I made for my career that was just like bigger than anything. anything you know what else. I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. No. Mm. And you know, I, at that time, I mean, I had no acting reel to show him because like that, you know, that show that I did hadn't come out yet. I had no, you know, all the things that you... All the conventional kind of, means of what you're supposed to have, you just didn't have. I didn't have, but what happened was I went in a room and I proved myself inside of a room and I, I let people feel my energy. And out of that, he was like, wow, I want to represent you. And I've been with that same manager since, you know, and that, because it was like that connection there, like him seeing me do that. And it's just been like, since then everything sort of has shifted. And, you know, when I got with him, he said to me, look, this doesn't happen overnight and you need to understand that. Because that's the other thing is that there's this idea that people sort of think it's, they can just like make it happen. And even as quickly as it has happened for me is even rare. Mm. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't happen overnight. You have to, you know, spend the time, even like you really need to spend like two years just going around in all the rooms and people getting to know you. Yeah, seeing your you face know, like, and familiarising themselves with you. Because I then did modeling where you literally, there's so much rejection in modeling that I was accustomed to that, where it's like you literally go somewhere sometimes and they just look at your picture, they don't even look at you, you're standing in front of them and they're just like, that'll be all, thank you. Um, and, you know, so I was used to that. And I was also comfortable being in front of a camera, I think, and I had done the television commercials. All of that lent itself mm -hmm. to me being able to just jump into the acting and like get past the things that generally like trip you up about it. But I always say this and it always happens in a real organic way because all of your steps have kind of been 
organic but in an unconventional way you know but still like they're like layers to it and that's why I say a lot of the time in that sometimes it's not always about the conventional means because sometimes going against the grain is what makes you stand out but also the skills that you learn going against the grain is what like all the time people always ask me oh my god Isa, I see you doing all these amazing events you work with all these amazing artists I said I met everybody working in the nightclub everybody wanted to be my friend because I ran the door of a nightclub that's how literally that's the most unconventional way of getting into this industry was me literally telling people that they couldn't get in and everybody hating me <laughs> is now what has got me to, into this position but it's interesting because it's a similar like going against the grain of the norm is what's made you you that's what's made Jody Jody like do you know what I mean so like I think it's just so an important element because people always feel like you have to either go the conventional route or you just get that leg up and you've kind of shown that you didn't have any of those and you're still were able to be successful and then when you actually start to think about what is success I always say it is what you make it like you've got to be in it to win it sis and if you don't try if you don't ask you don't get it's just that simple exactly and that's one thing I have never been afraid to ask for support and honestly I think that's the hardest thing because you know as a woman as a black woman you know when you're on your own it's hard to ask for support because we think we need to be able to shoulder everything on our own and do everything on our own and, and also it's like asking for support also means being able to discern who you can even ask well you know because nothing is free in this world and it's like you've got to really be careful like is somebody really an ally or are they really someone who's just trying to use the fact that you need something to you know what I mean? And so, like, that is, is also part of it. And it's funny because, you know, I think my whole life I spent most of my time, like, in a book, in doing things in a more mechanical way, doing things in more, less of an, you know, an intuitive way. And so I didn't really have, I think, the street smart at first, you know, and I kind of had to, like, learn that on the fly. You know what I mean? But I think I did a good job of that. And and that has kind of supported me in getting here. And I think just this idea, like the confidence I had in myself just as a person where I just felt like, you know what? I think in order to make it in doing something in the creative arts, you have to believe in some way that you're extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to believe in some way that you're special. Otherwise, it's like, why are you even doing it? And it's not about like, oh, I'm special. Like it's, a, it's an ego thing. It's like, no, I, I believe in myself. I buy my own shit. So that other, because why should anybody else buy it if you don't buy you it? You don't buy it, yeah. And I think for me, something that's always stood about about out about you is that how open your heart is, but also how much we're quite similar in that we're quite straight talking, and you know we're both very tall, so people always kind of throw that oh intimidation card at us. And I think we clicked because we've got a mutual friend. Shout out to Asia. I came to LA like moving bare mad and Asia was just like, you should meet my friend Jody because you guys are so similar. And then we kind of connected and it was weird because then me and you kind of just had our own relationship. And, you know, we're like the turn up queens would always be out to like, we're like thieves in the night. We'd always be out mad gallivanting. Like, but also just like, it, for me, what stood out for you, what stood out about you to me was just how open you were and how honest you were and how direct. And I saw so much of, not even myself, but just, I'm always relating to people who I know where they, I stand with them. And I always knew where I stood with you all the time, you know, and you welcomed me and you embraced me and you took me around and you introduced me to your network. And I think we've always had that, I see you sis kind of vibe, you know? And that's one thing I kind of really, really loved about you and your personality and your energy. Like we always have this conversation about energy, but I feel like when you really meet people, and you click that's something that is really unbreakable no matter how you might not speak for years months but you see each other you always have that bond with people it's always love you know so I really want to get into Queen and Slim because I feel like you know that's where I've got so much that I want to ask you about but I think 
you know, I, with TTYA, we hosted one of the London premieres um, of Queen and Slim. And it was amazing for me to kind of have a sit down and in-depth conversation with Lena and Melina. Um, obviously, Queen and Slim kind of features you and Daniel Kalua. And Daniel's a really good friend of me, mine. Love him to pieces. But also met Daniel at the club. Don't cry, don't beg. But um, we'll save that one for another podcast. But, you know, Quinn and Slim like, kind of really tackles um, the subject of US police brutality and race. And, you know, after the events of recent weeks, just like touching on kind of like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, you know, it's something that we kind of see um, again and again, just how systematic and racial oppression is really affecting the black community and how it's still very much prominent in present day. Culturally, how important was it for you playing that role and being part of that whole storytelling? Honestly, it's the thing that to date I'm the most proud of that I've done. You know, I felt like it was you know, I remember when I read that script, I cried. Mm. And I always felt so connected to the story and I felt like the story was so important because I think that it speaks to something that is just very, very real for Black people here. And I think, you know, because of the realness of that, that's why I think it was kind of hard to swallow to see it not kind of take on a more of a fantasy and unreal uh you know, ending in nature because it's like we need that, we need that relief, you know, but it's just, it was just so real. It was just, it just was... We really wanted you guys to get on the plane. We were rooting for you guys to get on the plane. We were rooting for you to get on the plane. But I felt like it was a real representation of where we are as a community today, you know? You know, everyone thinks that the villain was that that guy, but I think that, I think it more was saying, you know, the villain is capitalism, you know what I mean? Because that's why that even happened you know what I mean but anyway it's it just felt like something that was deeply important to say and I it was so as well so so outrageous to say because there was never anything like that before there was never anything where black people making black art were saying we're gonna make this and we're gonna tell this story about what you guys are doing to us you know and it felt so radical like it felt you know, that was what made the film in and of itself feel like a protest. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even though it didn't have like, you know, this, a, an ending that felt good. It was just like, it was, it was, it, it felt like. The messaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it just felt like something that was audacious in the way that, you know, I, and I understand like there is this idea of like, well, what what is trauma porn? You know, it's like, what is getting, what is getting too like uh, too exploitative with black mm-hmm. trauma but I think you know there is something that's audacious about like look at this it's the way it's 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 the reason why you know I mean they um Fred Hampton's family allowed people they opened the house for people to come into the house for the community to come into the house to see the way that he had been assassinated mm-hmm. so that people could see you know the blood everywhere the bullet holes everywhere so they knew what happened why Emmett Till's family were like we're going to have an open casket for this funeral so you see what this violent like the effect of this violence and it's like you know there's many sides to that argument as to whether or not that how much that really serves anything but you know I feel like that's really what it was about it was like we want you to look at something that you can't look away from that's mm-hmm. complicated and that's the other thing it's like you know I think that Queen and Sim was a film that really was kind of living in the question of a lot especially when it came to that interaction at the end and you know I mean it's like why does this happen and especially like many of many of the situations that cause people to have questions like why did you guys choose for that to happen in it and it's like because I think 
you know, I, I've done so many, you know, I've had to do a bit of press recently and people are asking you, they want answers and even not even just doing press, but like when you think about, I'm sure you've experienced people around you, white people around you suddenly are asking you like, how can we help? What can we do? Da, 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 da. And they want you to have an answer for them instead of them doing the work themselves to investigate that answer and living in the question themselves. It's like, we have to live in this question every day of our life of why is this happening? Of when will this end? Of how do we move it forward? And it's like, you have to live in that question too. You know, there isn't an answer that you can wrap a bow on and be like, this is how we solve it. It's like, no, we have to continue to live in the question and examine ourselves and examine each other and say like, how do we do better? How can we do more? How can we create a change shift for our children? And we have to constantly live that question every single day. And so it's just about time that other people live that question too. But what happens when people have to live a question is it's uncomfortable. Definitely. And I feel like even from a race perspective, the last couple of weeks have been extremely exhausting and tiresome because again, it is, again, them looking to us for the answer. There was a part of me that was like, I don't, I don't have the answers for you, sis. Like, go and do your research. There was also a part of me that feels like, okay, well, actually, let me, to a certain degree, be able to talk about this and open myself. And it was interesting to me because I lost thousands of followers, like, now just going on random rants on, on socials. But it was interesting for me at, to be able to have more talks with my community and just knowing that there's some of us that can speak and there's a lot of us that can't and I think the effects of the last couple of weeks have also like kind of resurfaced generational trauma in a lot of us seeing a lot of pain and suffering and you know I actually had to sit down and say do you understand like how fucked up it is to see your brothers and sisters killed online like do you actually do you actually get how deep that is and for it to just be like okay we're going to talk about it for a minute and then we're going to keep it pushing and then tomorrow you're going to be doing hashtag ad do you know what I mean and it's just a bit like the trauma of us and I think something that I feel like was really exceptional with your character in particular was her exploring generational trauma and I think that's something that has been even within myself something I've had to deal with in the last two years of just understanding and having that open open dialogue with my mother and understanding where I'm from and why I am the way I am because you know I've learned a lot of the stuff and bad habits from her and understanding like how that's birthed me into the woman of who I am and what I want to let go so when I have kids that's not passed on to them you know so but a lot of that I loved about your character was her you know just understanding who she was as a woman is there any part of you that can identify in your personal with your character yes in many ways obviously like just as a woman you know queen was this woman who was complicated in in her emotions and in how she dealt with them and I think it, it's it's very much the black woman's experience this idea that like I'm gonna bury my pain so, and I'm going to shoulder the pain of others. You know, mm. she literally made life's work to try and protect mostly black men from the death penalty. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And this idea of like, you know, I think as black women, we're always just like, you know, we, we take, we're, we're meant to be. Saviors. <laughs> Is how I always put it. We, we shoulder, we carry the world's weight on our shoulders, sis. It's like that quote, you know, black woman is the mule of the world. It's just like, and it's heavy. But what's so interesting is like her whole examination, this idea of generational trauma, you know, and especially me, like having just had a baby. These are all the things, and you know, my mother is here with me now. I'm just sitting and talking with her and, and how we're processing now our relationship based on like me having a new understanding of the things that she's been through and having it looking at it now through the lens of being a mother you know what I mean and thinking about what she was going through as I was inside of her and what that created 
you know what I mean? And what that did me as a small child, as a baby, like my temperament. And then, you know, because all of this stuff has been happening. It's like I was pregnant when the pandemic sort of shut everything down. Still, I was nearing the end of my pregnancy. And then I gave birth to my daughter. And shortly after I gave birth to her, the country and then the world erupted in protest. And it was like, it took me weeks before I could actually watch video. And I watched the video of George Floyd, not because I I thought, I just felt like I needed to see it for myself. You know, because I felt like I needed to, yeah, I just felt like I needed to see it for myself. And there's so many things I've been trying to avoid because I'm like, as I sit here, my daughter is on my body for most of the day. I'm feeding her from my breast. She's all the energy, everything that I feel. And it's like, and it's been so stressful. Because, yes. You know what I mean? And I think about how, what happened to me because of how my mother was. And it's like, you know, my child, she's so joyful because I gave, I made a conscious effort to try and give her so much love and energy and positivity, like through, like pheromones, constantly pheromones, pheromones, as she was inside of me because I wanted her to feel that love and that joy. And, and you know, thankfully my relationship with my husband is as such that it was just like, she was just surrounded by love. Like mm-hmm. he was very... You know, he really created for me an experience in my pregnancy that deliberately and intentionally we knew was different than the one that our mothers had had. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it was so beautiful that my mom actually came. She came probably about two weeks before I gave birth and she was here and she got to see him loving me and supporting me so that she could also for herself kind of heal that place that says, you know what I mean, that felt unprotected. You know what I mean? That felt like there is not any safety as a woman coming in to bringing a child into the world you know what I mean that it can look different and so I've just been like trying to do my best but it's like so hard to to keep to shut it out do you know what I mean it's so hard to shut out the outside world and to not but I'm so conscious of like well, what am I passing on to my daughter mm-hmm. what am I passing on to her when I you know when I'm stressed out by this and that and when I'm reading when I'm this constant onslaught of black bodies being cut down and that's something that even for me to the point where I was just like asking those questions because I was just like do you understand like what it is or you're absorbing and what you're harboring like visually how you're absorbing that tra- that, that trauma and I think it was interesting because I know like you know, a lot of the film was shot in Ohio and New Orleans and obviously New Orleans had this kind of, you know, deep, dark history to it. So how 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 was it even spending time there and what did you kind of take away after you left New Orleans? There is a very powerful energy in New Orleans that you can just feel. I mean, and because it, quite literally there are bodies under the ground, bodies that have been washed out of graves that ended up just being like, I mean, New Orleans, you can't go. And that's why they say it's so haunted because there's actual bodies just like under the ground. And that's why they bury bodies above ground now because the ground is so soft and swampy that the bodies, you bury them and they come back up. Mm. But anyway, I say that to say, it's also this place that has had this very interesting past and this very interesting connection to, you know, it's it was one of the cities that was like the most mixed in the United States and it's also one of the cities where like some of the most kind of insane things have happened there but the energy of the black people there I mean you know they actually would because of that sort of French attitude mm-hmm. they were a little bit more you know on Sundays for example like all the slaves they were allowed to 
uh, make to sell things and make money and like they would gather together like the the way that they would you know invoke their power and continue to like pass on their culture and heritage is like very deep and profound there and there were so many times where filming this I could feel the energy you energy. can feel the energy of the actresses there like you can feel it you know what I mean and I would just talk to them and ask them for their blessing mm. you know what I mean I would ask them for their blessing because it's like at the end of the day, Daniel and I, we just really wanted to bring, you know, we have so much respect and reverence for what happens in this country and what Blacks have been through in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a deeply unique experience, what, what they've been through here. And so I would just talk to them. Like, like I wanted to honour them with my performance, what I was doing, with like the story that we're telling. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You could feel it. I mean, there was so many times it's like, it was it was very intense to be doing it in New Orleans and, and very amazing. It's a really beautiful city, energetically. I read a quote somewhere um, that Lena said that, you know, kind of Queen and Slim is about people falling in love despite, despite the world kind of burning down around them. And something that kind of stood out for me was just like, when I watched that film was just like, even as people, despite all odds, yeah. Uh, and my mum has this old, it's a very, quite an old African saying, it was just like, enemies of progress just don't prosper and I think for me it was just like against all odds no matter how much they want to hate on us no matter how much they've put us through no matter how much generational trauma that we've been through no matter how much you want to oppress us no matter how much you want to subject us we always win we always come back as people and I think it's within our natures to be natural born winners and that's why for me like it's so interesting because I've had to do a lot of these interviews recently just about like you know do we think that we're in a space for change we've been here before you know white people telling me we've been here before like what makes this time so different I think for me what I felt like was our sense of unity as a community and I think a lot of the time especially for us as first second third generation a lot of us now are in positions of influence are how have, do understand the power of network do understand the importance of a lot of us being in positions of power and where our voices can be heard and transferred in a more corporate understanding structure um, and I feel like that for me is where I can see change and and I don't necessarily feel like the change commercially is going to happen overnight maybe not in our generation but I feel like it's as even part of the reason why I started this podcast was just like you can't be what you can't see and and and, and if enough of us are in the positions where we can be seen then that's going to be the change. And that's all we need. And a lot of it is down to fear. We all know what it is down to, really. They're scared. They're scared that that we're going to come back and do to them what they did to us. That's all it is, really. But actually understanding that our characteristics, that's not even engraved in us to be able to be that mean and to be that wicked, you know? So I think even us as a generation now, being the change that we want to see and, you know, exploring generational wealth and a lot of us being in positions where even now in in our early 30s have probably made more money than our parents have made in a lifetime you know and I think that's the that's the change that I'm going to want to see and that's where we're going to be more empowered and that's where we're going to kind of you know come together and understand the power of our network to move more less than fingers and more as a fist and I feel like that's where we can really make the difference and make change. I, I completely agree with that and honestly and if you think about it that has always been the way in which white supremacy has worked is to divide us you know, I mean, it's, it has been necessary to divide us, to separate us, to make us feel like we have to, uh, you know, be against each other in order to succeed. You know, we have to be an exceptional type of, of black in order to be able to rise above, as opposed to a community. You know, and and I think that's why, because it's like 
you know, that idea and which really just made me even feel like I feel like crying when I ever I think about that you said, but it's true. It's like no matter what, how we are oppressed, you know, black people are so beautiful and their spirits, our spirits are are just unvanquishable in my opinion. You know what I mean? And it's just like and it's even why when you know you go to some places where they're meant to be you know Jamaica I go to when I go to Jamaica and you look at these people they don't have anything they're poor but their their spirits their energies their beauty yes their 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 joy their 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 appreciation of life what they create with small things Mm -hmm. you know what I mean it's just like it's incredible and I think that as we not just in our respective countries and that's what I think was so amazing about what happened with these George Floyd protests is how you saw them ripple across the world and how all of the black communities everywhere were saying what is happening in this community is terrible and it was also making them feel join and speak louder about what's happening in our own Own individual exactly and we became like a world community and I think that once we just start really leaning more into that where it's just like you know, we are like across the diaspora, like we are one community together. You know, I mean, and we all have nuanced experiences from country to country, but like we're all in this together. And like, that's how we're most powerful when there's no separation between us, you know, and that we tell each other stories and we make sure that each other's voices can be heard like everywhere, you know, and honor each other because it's like, we can't keep looking to, you know, white supremacy to overturn itself. That one, we're going to close it up. Obviously, now you're a wife, you're a mother. Things have kind of... Is there anything yeah. you've kind of viewed now a little bit more differently? And how has your, maybe your work-life balance slightly changed a bit? Yeah, I mean, listen, you don't realise how much... And I have been really, in many ways, like I'm so lucky and so privileged to have the life that I have and to have been able to say, like, you know, I don't have to feel, you know, a certain amount of, deep stress with not being able to work and I've been able to instead just kind of be in the joy of the fact that I can give my daughter all my attention because I'm telling you trying to trying to balance doing anything else is just like this whole experience of becoming a mother has changed the way I think about women in general and I mean I've always loved women I've always been a woman who's like a woman's woman that's and I think all women as in our nature is to be women's women it's like another thing it's just like how the, the black community is divided they divide us it's the do same thing with women they make us mm-hmm. compete with each other exactly. instead of because of how powerful it is when women get together but I say that to say like having given birth and seeing like how immense of a challenge that is what your body goes through how there's so very little support for women after they do it during while they're doing it there's so little support for them you know the how it affects black women obviously worse even when the whole you know pandemic happened and then suddenly they were telling women they couldn't have support partners in the birthing rooms and it's just like already as a black woman you have to advocate for yourself in that room because people don't want to listen to you about your pain about what you're going through so imagine doing it alone with no support partner as well to to support you in doing that to help you to advocate how scary that is but anyway your body goes through this massive transformation and it's just like it's hard to think about anything else because you have suddenly this being that depends on you and yet there are so many women who do it alone with no support who do it while working women are incredible (laughs) women are incredible and society really tries to downplay the whole thing they really try to make it seem like oh well this is women's work and it's it's just you need to be able to do that and you pop out your baby and then you need to 
you know, you need to get your body back and then you need to be able to work and do this and this and that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's so disrespectful. After having been through it, I'm just like, wow, it's so disrespectful. <laughs> I want to find a way to like advocate for women to have postpartum support, postnatal support, because it's just like, it is so difficult. It really does take a village. You know, it takes more than just like my mum has been here this whole time and that's been incredible. Like, you know, because she's just been cooking food. I was like, sis, are you trying to steal my husband? Like, what's going on? <laughs> and I'm loving everything. And this baby is like so well fed because I'm just like so well fed. So there's so much laughter in my house. You know, my mum and also, you know, our, our nanny, she's also Jamaican. So it's just like my husband is surrounded by three Jamaican women. Bats for days. Bats for days, sis. It's just good. And it's like, I think about this small community that I have around me and how there's so much I wouldn't be able to do if I didn't have them. Like, I can't imagine if I didn't have someone. I realise how lucky I am to have that and how it's just like, how do we create a play, a world where women are more supported in this? Mm-hmm. You know, where it's not just something that's available to you if you have the financial means to it. You know, if you give birth at the hospital, nobody comes to check on you until six weeks. Mm-hmm. That's mad. That's crazy. There's so much that happens in six weeks with a newborn as well. That's mad. So much that happens, you know what I mean? And so much that happens to your body. I mean, your organs move. All of your organs move so that the uterus can stretch. Everything moves to support this pregnancy. And then it all has to move back. You know what I mean? It's like that takes recovery. And you've got women who have to just like... Get straight back in. You know, I gave birth at home and they they didn't let me come downstairs for 14 days. They were like, really? For the, the good of your uterus, you should not walk downstairs for 14 days. And I'm thinking to myself like, I already, I know my mother didn't do that. Do you know what I mean? My mother, she actually, she broke her pelvis because she had, after she had me, because she also had my brother. So she's got a newborn and then she's got my brother who's 16 months older than me. Got, you know what I mean? She's trying to, and, and really no support from my father, you know? Because it's, it's, especially back then when men are like, well, we go to work and that's Working. it. That's, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's great. I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I'm just like, I can't imagine. My whole worldview has changed since having a baby. And I just, I have more, I understand even more deeply how profound women are. So what's next, sis? What are you allowed to tell us? <laughs> I mean, you know, I think obviously next I've got, because I did three movies last year. The last one I did with that remorse, Michael B. Jordan, that's coming out in February. Oh, cute. I did that during my second trimester. So that was like. You get a whole dinner for that one, sis, because that's mad. <laughs> that's really mad. My belly got so big by the end. I was really mad. I was I was, had a very active second trimester. Um, and then I did a film with Colin Farrell called After Yang, which I'm not sure when that's going to come out. Um, we were hoping to take that to festivals, but you know, I've got that. And then you know, there's some things maybe going on for next next year. You know, obviously that announcement just came out about a film that I might be doing with um John Boyega. Mm-hmm. Um. Obviously, John, John, the homie, the baby. <laughs> there's much opportunity on the horizon. I'm really fortunate in the way that things kind of ended up working out with this because it's just like, whereas it would have been that I would have been watching the world kind of get on with it while I was at home taking care of my baby. It's been like the whole world has kind of stopped. And now I've had all this time to just be with her and take care of her and nothing to make me feel like, oh, am I missing out on this? Like, but I'm torn. No yeah. Yeah, I mean, none of that. And now I, you know, it was really, it was me just going back to my team and being like, all right, I think I'm going to start thinking about work again. And so by the time everything gets back up, it will actually have been kind of perfect. You've had quite a lot of downtime. I just wanted to say thank you so much. Honestly, sis, like, like just hearing your story and one, the fact that you've been so open, but two, just like 
showing so much resilience and like just hearing your story just makes you've powered me up now like hearing you is just really just being like no one no one can do it the way that you're gonna do it do you know what i mean and i feel like that's something that's really passionate is that no one's gonna do it the way you're gonna do it no one's gonna have your energy no one's gonna bring your vibe and that's actually your you that's actually your own personal usp so even for me i'm taking away from this podcast my own personal usp <laughs> it's gonna be the vibe ambassador constantly <laughs> you know everyone's got a different journey and some people are like they've known what they want to do or when they find out what they want to do they're like just driven it's like tunnel vision to get that and my journey has been more like i did something that i I, I thought I wanted to do and I didn't like it and I was unhappy and I decided that I was going to look for happiness and fulfillment and that's been kind of what's driven me to do everything so it's just never felt like a slog it's never felt like work and it, it has been scary it has been mm. very like I don't know what's going to happen I don't know how I'm going to make it to the next point but every time I've felt like if the most important thing is that I'm happy with what I'm doing with myself that I feel like I'm trying something new and I, I feel like this is what I'm meant to be doing. Like this, this brings me joy. This makes me feel excited. You know, like first time I ever did a fashion show, I was just like so excited. I cried after. First time I, you know, really went there for something, which was that audition that got me my manager. You know, I fucking tore myself to pieces for that. And it felt so good to know that like everything that I'd ever felt that was scary, that was ugly, that was, that made me feel less than all of that are feelings that belong to me. It all belongs to me. It's all mine. It's my pain. It's my power. And I can use it. And that's really what's amazing about acting is that you can use that to drive it. And I think about art in general, that you can use everything about yourself, even the things that scare you, and let them drive the car. And it's like, I'm just seeing what the fuck's going to happen next. <laughs> what can we create now? <laughs> oh, sis, give it to them. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for your time. Guys, this has been TTYA Talks with Jodie Turner-Smith. Like, love, share, subscribe. There's too much black girl magic in this episode for you to not share it with your friends and family. You know, we've got to push. We've got to, you know, black excellence. My enemies necessary. So we love that, guys. Until next time. Thank you.